Welcome to Real Estate Investing Abundance, the show for busy, fulfilled professionals like you to learn how to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. Now, here is your host, Dr. Alan Lomax. Hello, enlightened investors. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Lomax. And what a pleasure it is to be with you today as we discover how to buy inflation and resistant businesses. Sam Wilson is an active investor in self-storage parking, retail, multifamily apartments, RV parks, and single-family homes. He is the host of the How to Scale Commercial Real Estate podcast, and he participated in over $30 million in acquisitions in 2021. And I am looking forward to learning from Sam as we go into this very pertinent topic. So Sam, take us into the show by sharing yep. a memorable experience from your formative years that helped make you who you are today. Alan, thanks for having me. Sorry for stepping on you there a little bit. Uh, let's see, formative experience, man. I feel like there's a lot of them. I think one of the one of the things that was instilled in me early on was a sense of adventure. And, you know, so as a, as a kid, we didn't grow up with a lot. We grew up pretty poor, but, you know, the, uh, actually we were very poor. Uh, <laughs> now that I think about it, but, you know, one of the things that you can do is always get out in nature and take, you can always experience adventure in the woods. And so I think about a trip we took, uh, actually here in the, the great state of Tennessee, I grew up in Indiana, but here in the great state of Tennessee, there's a small little area called the Big South Fork. It's really hard to get to. It's off. It's I mean, it's hours off of any highway. It's in the middle of nowhere. Borders Tennessee and Kentucky. And there's the there's the Big South Fork River. And it's a, it's a random river in that it runs north, not south. So it's the, it's the Big South Fork of the Cumberland River, and it runs north. And my uncles and my dad and my oldest brother and actually several of my brothers and I all took a big canoe trip down oh, that wow. river. Wow! And it was a harrowing harrowing experience. Really? We were, I was, I was freshman in high school and, you know, capsized canoes, gear floating down the river, class three and four rapids. The river is just, it's a wild, wild river and it changes just dramatically as you go down it. But I think about that trip often in the sense that it was probably one of my highlights as a kid of just one of the coolest trips that we ever did, you know, many, many days in the river all, you know, all of those 10 of us total that went on that trip. And that that sense of adventure was something that we always grew up with. Even without a lot of money, there was always opportunity to go out and just see what the world, you know, what the world has to yeah. offer and what it's wow. like to experience it. And so that's something that I think I've always carried with me is this desire to experience adventure in everyday living. Yeah. Wow. Wow. What a wonderful adventure. I grew up in Durango, Colorado. Mm. We didn't have a whole lot either, but Durango is surrounded by national forests. And my parents were were wonderful about getting us kids out into that. I, I mean, almost every weekend we were out in the forest in some way, shape or form. That's um, awesome. Yeah. I love Durango. That's on my short list, actually. Is it really? Yeah. It is. How yeah. Cool. My wife and I have said, look, if we, you know, we get our, our, our things wrapped up here in Memphis, Tennessee, which is where home is now, it, it's either Durango or a Puerto Rico. So it's it's wow, yeah, top yeah. two for us. Durango's a wonderful place. Lots of outdoor adventures there year round. So yeah, terrific. Well, let's get into real estate. Thanks for sharing that it's a wonderful experience there. So tell us about investing in fragmented industries and what do you mean by that? What is a fragmented industry and why invest in fragmented industries? 
Yeah, it's a great question. What is a fragmented industry? Think about it as something that's not been institutionalized or something that large institutional capital has not flown into. Mm. You know, so the, I mean, everybody thinks of, you know, restaurants. Restaurants are largely institutionalized. You can go into any town in the country and what are you going to find? You're going to find a Chick-fil-A, you're going to find a McDonald's, you're going to find any of the name brands, yeah, all the way down to grocery stores. Institutional capital has gone into grocery mm-hmm. stores. You can find it here in the Southeast, you can find a Publix in almost every town, or you can find a Kroger here, you know, here Memphis all the way to the Midwest, you can find a Kroger. I'm not sure where you're based now, Alan. But there's a lot of businesses that large institutional capital has come into. They're now professionally run and managed. It's a, and not that you can't get in the restaurant industry. Certainly there's Lots of opportunity to get into that and, and do your own thing, and that's that's still all hip and good. But when you look at a fragmented business, you want to find something that just hasn't yet been, again, institutional capital hasn't flown into. And why do you want that? Because it leaves it as a largely you know, owner-operator, mom-and-pop-owned, not professionally run. It might be a single, it might be their only store or their only business that they own. It's like, oh, okay. When my dad got into, and not until his mid or probably early to mid fifties, did my parents actually kind of start getting out of that being really poor cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they got into a business of water damage restoration. Now in the early nineties, that was, there wasn't large institutional capital in that. I mean, I don't know if you've heard of the name ServPro before, but it's yeah. a you, you've heard of ServPro, right? They weren't around. So uh-huh. when my dad got into the water damage industry, he was like one of you know maybe two or three people in the whole city of Indianapolis doing water uh-huh. damage restoration. It was not yet institutionally run and managed. It's really hard in today's environment. Now my family still owns that business, but it's really hard in today's environment to compete in that space because now it's mm-hmm. it's a uh, you know there, there's big national players in it. That said, there's still opportunity though across a variety of of asset classes or businesses you can get into that are fragmented, that are still mom and pop run. Again, all the attributes I just said. And the thing about those is that if you can bring a set of, or bring professional management, or if you can bring some more sophisticated operating procedures to that business, it's just ripe for innovation. It is ripe for enhancing the business. I mean, it's the, and we can go into the things that I invest in, you know, when you're ready. But uh, th- those are things you want to look for is stuff that's kind of legacy owned, mom and pop, not professionally run, not sophisticated, generally single store owners. And those are those are businesses you want to get involved in. And if you can buy several of those, then it becomes, you know, a viable opportunity. Sounds like a, a great business plan there from or a basis for a business plan. You also talk about not only fragmented industries, but buying boring businesses. That doesn't sound very romantic and initial. Look at that. Why would you buy a boring business? Doesn't sound like there would be much growth or hope of growth for that. So why do you say buy boring businesses? Boring is good in the sense that I want cash flow. So I want something that is predictable, that throws off a predictable income that is not sexy. I mean, people love to love to speculate and throw money at stuff. And I mean, I think about if if you don't know anything about the multifamily industry right now, the the or for those of you who are not real estate people listening to this show, multifamily is also known as apartment complexes. 
the money flowing into apartment complexes right now is absolutely crazy. I mean, it's it's a very difficult space to get into. It's it's highly competitive. Cash flow is almost. I mean, it's the, the, because people are paying so much for properties, it's the cash flow has been you know depleted to mm-hmm. you know very very minimal amounts. But there's Absolutely. boring businesses out there that, you know, aren't sexy, that aren't, you know, flash in the pan. Oh, my gosh, this is exciting. That's not Bitcoin. That's not whatever it is that people mm-hmm. are speculating on. And they produce a, they can produce a consistent income. Ten years ago, when I got into real estate, I didn't understand the idea of cash flow. Mm-hmm. I was I was I was a, a fix and flip guy at about 60 single family fix and flip properties. And I'm like, why would I hold this for cash flow? This doesn't make any sense to me. I can you know, make, you know, X number of dollars on each of these properties today. Why hold it for 500 bucks a month in cash flow? That doesn't make any sense to me. My thinking is, has since changed mm-hmm. because that cash flow buys my time back today. And I think right. that's something that boring businesses do for us is that they free up our time. My most valuable asset is my time. And that's something that boring businesses, you know, do for us is that they produce an income that then allows me to do what I want with my time. And that's, that's freedom that most people don't get to experience very often. Well, I have a question in regarding to cash flow. I mean, that's that's really great, but when you are are scaling, you generally are going to have to have investors to help you to scale. Some investors are looking for cash flow, but many more of them are looking for that the IRR and the equity multiplier and those those more sexy kind of things that bring them a larger income rather than necessarily cash flow does. So how are you attracting your investors to your boring investments? You know, the, I think there's not every investment thesis or strategy is for every investor. Right. I mean, that's that's the first thing. I spend a lot of time on the phone with investors every week and not everyone is on board with what I'm doing. Some people and, and I'm I'm not on board with what I'm doing in my own retirement accounts. Mm-hmm. Like for my retirement accounts, Alan, like I I because I self-direct my retirement accounts, those and I don't need the cash flow off of those. I put those in other operators' investments that are the equity multiplier, that are the high RR, that are the appreciation plays. Because I don't need the cash flow from that. So even in my own strategy, I'm a little bit, you know, double-minded. Mm-hmm. But for the, the the cash of mine that's not retirement account directed, I want that to produce an income. So anyway, I, I say all that to say that not every investment is for the same person or, or for, uh, you know, every person. But mm-hmm. inside of that, when we start to see, especially with market volatility the way it is, with recession potentially on the horizon, with the interest rate, you know, questions people are having right now, I can't think of an investor conversation I've had in the last three months that wasn't like, oh, cool. So you're buying recession resistant income producing assets. How do I get in how do I get involved? Right. So I think I think when there's uncertainty on the horizon, people and, and we're even seeing that there's there's less there's less appetite to just throw it out there and, and you know roll, roll the roll the dice and hope for a double. It's like okay, wait, people are going into defense, and mm-hmm. so I think what we're doing becomes even more attractive to investors right now. Have Have you seen that shift? I have, yeah, yeah. I have, and and especially in the assets we're buying. I mean, people are really excited about it. I get calls all the time. It's like, oh, cool. Mm-hmm. I, I want to be involved in that because I just don't like, they just don't like what, what they're seeing and feeling. Right. And, and it may be all just fear-based, but either way, it, it is becoming, uh, cash flow is becoming more of an attractive part of people's yeah. equation. 
Well, yeah, looking for that IRR equity multipliers, I mean, you have to depend upon and you have, I mean, you have to depend upon inflation and that takes timing the market, which is a very dangerous and risky proposition. It always is. Well, just one more thing. And then I want to go into what it is you're, you're doing now, but you say, don't follow the herd. And what I like here is you say, use the herd as the canary in the gold mine. Explain that to us. From what I understand, I'm no miner, right? But the analogy <laughs> is, you know, they're taking a canary in the coal mine, and when the canary dropped over dead, that the oxygen levels had dropped to a point where it, it was time for the miners to get out. That's mm-hmm. the story I've been told. Whether or not it's true, I don't know. <laughs> but either way, uh, that's the idea behind it. And so, you know, when you see everyone flocking in one direction or doing one thing, it's it's um, not always that the herd is completely wrong, but it's certainly indication that there's probably greener pastures. And, and, and so I've always kind of used that. I use that even when I'm driving. It's like when you see everybody going one direction, it's like, wait, maybe. And, and it's just, there's always a, a better way around it. I got, I saw some on the interstate the other day, just traffic backed up forever. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to pass that exit and I'll go to the next exit. And I know the back road into this, you know, into where I'm going. I probably save myself 45 minutes. Everybody else is just getting off on that exit, just waiting their time. Like, oh my gosh, like, no, just go <laughs> one more exit. And, and there's nobody there. It's yeah. brilliant. And so I think the same thing happens in investing, where it's there are underappreciated, undervalued, underinvested in assets. Again, going back to boring, going back to not sexy. Yeah, I mean, you can make. I've got. I have. Uh, I have people right now that are making tens of millions of dollars in the multifamily industry, and good for them. Good for you. You know, you, you got it right. You timed it right, and you hit your home. And and, and I, I, I'm not opposed to that. That's great. But also, it can tell you that there's that they're 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 making those returns with potentially risk that they may have not calculated or understood. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with that, if the if the herd's going one direction, I want to kind of look to the left and right of center and see what everybody else isn't looking at. Yeah, I talked to a lot of investors. A lot of them new to the business who've been in the business you know, less than five years and they are just going great guns and and just doing a wonderful job. And and particularly when I'm talking to these young investors or these new investors, not all of them are necessarily young, but they're new into the business and they just start going gung-ho. And I'm just always thinking in the back of the my, my mind, you don't know what's around the corner and <laughs> you just haven't been in the business long enough to take the caution that you probably should be doing. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us what, what's going on now. What are you investing in? Why are you investing in what you're investing in? I have my hands in two two distinct businesses. One is in the in the real estate space. It is the RV resort business. And you might, it, it, that being an undervalued, underinvested in, but yet has enormous tailwinds to it. The RV industry was experiencing a boom even before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So you already had a, a, a nice a nice industry, you know, going really well. And then the pandemic happened and just threw gasoline on fire. So we had just for, just to give you deliveries, I think the deliveries is an interesting point to start with in that we had 350,000 new RV deliveries in the U.S., in 2020, we had 350,000. Really? We had 600,000 new deliveries in 2021. So we had a really? 3% increase. We have 600,000 more already on tap for 2022. Wow. We're absorbing 1.2 million new RVs into the United States in 24 months. My gosh. Where are these going? 
So you've yeah. got two industries that are going to explode from that. One is the RV resort industry, and then there's the RV, and, and I pair boat storage with it as well, because that's, you know, those two go hand in hand, but but the RV and boat storage industry as well. Decided to focus on the RV resort industry because it is all the things we talked about at the beginning of the show, in that it is fragmented. It is largely mom and pop run. It is not sophisticated. We just bought a resort last week that had, or no, two weeks ago now, it had a website Every bet from 1998 had a Hotmail <laughs> address where you could do your bookings. Email us at, you know, 1234.hotmail.com uh-huh. and, you know, get your booking. There's no online booking. The same price on April 4th as it was July 4th to stay there. This should be dynamic pricing. I mean, these are these are low-hanging fruits for us. It's like mm-hmm. not that hard to implement. They're just, they're mildly sophisticated, but not that sophisticated. If you can use a computer to a certain degree, you can figure out dynamic. Small stuff like that that are not even large capital expenditures that you can bring to a business and go, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. we can have a 10, 20, 25% bump in net operating income year over year just by implementing small strategies like that. So, you know, with that, the RV resort industry has enormous tailwinds going into it. It is underbuilt. It's if you go into the Southeast and if it's a place worth staying at and try to book a vacation, I have a lot of investors that are also RVers. They, I mean, they're telling me, they're like, we're trying to book stuff through the Southeast or in Florida for the summers. We're taking a trip and they said, it's really hard to get anywhere, really hard to find an open wow. spot. So that said, there are tailwinds to it. We, of course, have had the remote work boom that has come up as well. And so we've got, you've got a lot of, you know, high demand, under, under improved, under, underbuilt, and, you know, I don't see it going away anytime soon. The largest, this would surprise you, I think, to find out that the largest ownership group of RVs in the United States is millennials with kids. It used to be north of 60. You were, you were north of 60, you were retired, you're going on a national park tour and you bought an RV and, oh, won't this be mm-hmm. fun? Well, no, now it's changed. It's millennials with kids. Mm-hmm. One of the largest mobile home park owners, you probably know the name, Frank, the Frank Rolf. Mm-hmm. He put out a study here recently that said that 60% of RV owners are looking for a newer and bigger RV. Wait, what in the world? Really? Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the RV market's on fire. Really? And wow. that could go away. So with that, there also comes risk, right? I mean, mm-hmm. okay, so let's say everybody just up and decides one day, you know, we're done RV and we're not using these anymore. The interesting thing about the RV resort industry and what makes it somewhat recession resistant is that they have a long-term component to it, much like a mobile home park, in mm-hmm. the sense that 60 to 70% of these parks have a, a an annual lease on their site. So people will bring their RV, they'll put it on site, and they leave it there for the whole year. Hmm. But it's unlike a mobile home park in the sense that they don't and usually can't live there full time, but yet they come in, they stay for a week or a week or two mm-hmm. or maybe a three-day weekend, and then they're gone again. So you get stability of revenue with the long-term component. So let's say that everybody, let's say gas goes to 20 bucks a gallon and everybody says, well, we can't drive our RVs anymore. Well, then we just increase our long, long-term component of the park and, you know, maybe have less less of the um, short-term stays there. So that said, there are some recession-resistant components to it. We see enormous tailwinds in the space. And it really is, you know, we're buying things on anywhere from an 8 to a 13 cap right now. So is that can, right? Wow. Yeah. So if you can do that, you know, compare that to a mobile home park even. I mean, mobile home parks are trading in the, in the high fives. I mean, it's just, again, the mobile home parks have had an enormous influx of institutional capital. Right. RV resorts, not yet. So I think we're maybe five to seven years behind where RV resorts are. So that's business number one. That is interesting. I'm wondering also if many of the holders of RV parks aren't close to retirement themselves and looking to get out of it. Yes. 
generally single asset owners. It is mom and pop, and they're tired. Mm-hmm. They're just tired. And, yeah. you know, like this park we just bought, they're tired. They've been there a long time. They've been managing it themselves. and uh, Yep. And it's a full-time job for them. You know, they, they're they're working. You know, I think this one was open nine months of the year. Mm-hmm. So they've been working hard nine months of the year. They take three months off to try to do whatever they can to fix the problems that, you know, sprung up at the park throughout the, the nine months of operation. And then they're trying to sneak in a vacation and, and breathe for a minute. And then they're right back at it as soon mm-hmm. as they get home. And it's like, yeah, they're just, they're just worn out. I'm wondering if that gives opportunity for owner financing. Yes, yes, I think I think it will. We we didn't uh, didn't secure that on this last deal, but certainly that is one of the things that that does bring up uh, that this that this gentleman brings up because you know people in that position also when they get an influx of you know millions of dollars they don't know what to do with it. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, well, why not reinvest it in the asset you already know and you know carry carry the note on it and have and have an income. Yeah. So what's the other business? Laundry. Laundry. So, laundry. Yeah. We own a laundry facility here. In <laughs> Are you Memphis. kidding? Uh-uh. I, I would I would think that they were going out of style. No, believe no. it or not, they are they are fantastic, fantastic business. I own one location here in Memphis right now. It's a self-serve laundromat, but it's also it's it's a different take on laundry in that we are staffed from eight AM to eleven PM. Every day. We're open 365 days a year. People just bring in their laundry for our staff to wash, dry, and fold. And then we also do the Uber of laundry here in Memphis. So we've got an app on your phone, you know, where people can get on there and say, hey, we want our laundry picked up tomorrow morning. You know, then our driver comes by and he picks up your laundry at 9 a.m., brings it back to the store. Our staff wash, dry, and fold it. And the next morning, your laundry's back on your doorstep in a nice little cute tote and your laundry's all done. Families love it. So it's 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 kind of serving a lot of different demographics in that you know you're just coin op we call it coin op we're moving more to card op and less to coin op mm-hmm. but the, your coin op you know just self serve customer is a great base for the business that's a that's a fantastic base for the business and actually when the economy does worse that business gets better because then people one they they they're not fixing their washer and dryer anymore because they don't want to spend a thousand bucks on going out and fixing their 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 new washer and dryer. Mm-hmm. Secondly, it's recession resistant in that behind say you know what are the inelastic uh, the items with inelastic demand? I think it's like cigarettes and alcohol, right? They're the two things in a recession that actually do better. Sadly, I know yes. it's it's a bad a bad comparison. Yeah. But, but right behind that, the last thing people want is to have is the is the stink. Like they uh-huh. want to have clean clothes. So food, clean clothes, and shelter are things that people just aren't generally giving up. Yeah. So again, you know, in a recession, our business will do better. The other thing yeah, I, I can, Yeah, I can see why it would in so many ways. I mean, people downsizing, and like you said, they don't want to spend money on repairs and certainly don't want to be purchasing a new washer and dryer that, I mean, you can't get one for less than a thousand. I mean, you can't get a pair for less than a thousand dollars today. Mm-mm. That's a big chunk out of somebody's fixed income. Right. Yeah. I can see why it would be. Go ahead. It's inflation resistant. I guess that's the other cool thing about it is that the technology that we have in these stores now, I can reprice my entire store in 30 seconds. I can do it right here from my computer. So it's like, okay, well, I mean, we've had a, oh, our utilities this year have gone up 60%. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, you know what? I can, I just got to reprice that into my, into my equipment. And it's just, I mean, it's the way it is. It's not, we're not tied to a long-term lease. I'm not tied to a, you know, a triple net yeah. lease on a, on a, on a piece of ground to a commercial tenant. I'm, I, I can, I can change my prices every single day if I wanted to. Of course, there is a point where you, you know, your customers can't absorb the, 
the increase, but usually a quarter at a time doesn't really, mm-hmm. nobody fusses. It's just like, well, this is. And that's, that also meets your criteria of non-institutionalized investors. And, and once again, probably many of them owned by people who are retiring and looking to get out of it. Yeah. You hit it. And that's, that's the cool thing about it. And that's why we see enormous runway in the space is because it's not institutionalized. I want to be, and, I, and I'm, I'm just putting it out there in the universe, I want to be the McDonald's of laundromats. That's my goal across Tennessee is to have 50 stores and then and then take it beyond that, you know, maybe, maybe you know, around the southeast, but to where it's the same footprint. We're going to start building these ground up where it's the same footprint, the same store every town you go to. And that's the cool thing about it is if there is a McDonald's in that town, then it can also support a laundromat. Yeah. Um, and it, that's it's just not a space that's been exploited on that front where you can get the same product everywhere you go. And that's something where we do see, we again, see opportunity because it's it's fragmented. It's it's not institutionally run. There's not the sophistication behind it. There's just not the capital that's flown into the space yet. So, you know, for us, and the cool thing about it is the cash on cash returns are absurd. Mm-hmm. Absurd. We're, we're talking on an annual basis, somewhere between 30 and 40% on these stores. Really? Wow. Yeah. So it's like, well... I just, I don't need that many of them to, to really make a difference in the quality of life we're leading. Well, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful and informative conversation, Sam. What do you have to offer our viewers and listeners? How can they take advantage of that? You know, I think if you're a passive investor, which I am as well, so this guide was created kind of from my own experience. But if you're a passive investor and you're investing in deals across the country, one of the things I've always struggled with, Alan, is knowing which deal is right for me. So I've created a guide. It's it's a, it's how to vet a deal in 10 minutes. If you go to our website, brickeninvestmentgroup.com forward slash checklist, that's Bricken spelled B-R-I-C-K-E-N, investmentgroup.com forward slash checklist, you can download a guide that will help you kind of refine your criteria as you're looking at deals. I know, especially early on in my passive investing journey, I spent an enormous amount of time looking at deals that ultimately in the end were just a waste of my time. It was like I spent three hours reviewing it. It's like, no, maybe that's not for me. Well, I, did, I found a, a way to, to boil that down to about 10 minutes of your time. Where you look at a deal, you run through it, you put it through your filters, and you go yes or no, or investigate further. And that's, that's what that guide is designed for, is that passive investor to help you really, really dial in what it is you want. And again, like I said, not every investment is for every investor. So this will help you kind of refine that. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sam, for being with us today. Wonderful conversation. Thank you, Alan. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Abundance, brought to you by Steve Talker Capital, a company working for passionate professionals like you to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. As part of our efforts to make the world a better place, Steve Talker Capital contributes to activities and organizations committed to better understand the equine. These endeavors attempt to enhance the human treatment of horses worldwide. Steve Talker Capital, working for a world where all creatures, great and small, flourish abundantly. For resources to develop your financial independence, connect with us at stevetalker.com.